0: Hello and welcome to Useful Idiots. I'm one of your hosts, Katie Halper.
1: And I am the other host, Aaron Matte. How are you, Katie? I'm good, you? I'm well.
0: I can't believe it's almost the fall though.
1: Oh, come on, don't say that.
0: Don't say that, right? Yeah, you're right. We're in the thick of it. We're still got a lot of summer on us.
1: We're in summer fun right now still.
0: Fall is always depressing. Fall is like the Sunday night when you were a kid before school. Mm. I don't know why that makes sense because before winter, I guess that does make sense, actually. I'm gonna pat myself on the back for that one. That was good. That was better than I thought momentarily. A couple seconds ago, I thought it wasn't good, but now I like it.
1: So you're standing behind your judgment of fall as being kind the of Sunday. a downer. Yeah, yeah. the Sunday, it's right. The Sunday, yeah,
0: But yeah. not as much of a downer as school, which is weird, because I didn't even dislike school. I just didn't like that transition from weekend to school.
1: What I remember looking forward to in the fall was the return of all my favorite television programming, all the season premieres. Of- All the shows I would watch. Like what? You know, uh, I don't know. Like all the, like Seinfeld and um, Roseanne, you know, know, all those great shows.
0: Yeah. Very problematic now.
1: Roseanne Barr is problematic now. Yeah. Right. She's
0: problematic as a person. Her show, I don't think was. And then Seinfeld is problematic as a person and as a show.
1: Seinfeld is problematic as a person? I think so. I mean, look, tough standards out here. It's very easy to be problematic, I guess, these days. Yeah. Yeah.
0: We'll have to look into that. We'll have to he's not canceled yet. We gotta check it out. <laughs> Investigate. Yeah.
1: I uh anyway, look, we can have the Seinfeld debate some other time. Let's get yes. to our four food right, Let's
0: get to our four basic food groups. Democrats suck, Republicans suck. Isn't that weird? Isn't that terrible? So, Aaron, you got the dem suck.
1: All right. So this week, Democrats did do something. And as someone out there who watches the show and you see us criticize Democrats a lot, you might be thinking, all right, are they finally going to give credit? The Democrats for passing something, which is the Inflation Reduction Act, which has some provisions in it that are welcome, including uh, provisions to tackle the climate. Well, sorry, we are kind of the, the Debbie Downers of the left. So we're going to have to bring you what's bad about this bill and why it actually shows the Democrats suck. And who better to explain it than Bernie Sanders? Bernard. He spoke on the floor outlining some of his objections to the bill
2: this proposed legislation includes a huge giveaway to the fossil
1: fuel industry. Under this legislation, the fossil fuel industry will receive billions of dollars in new tax breaks and subsidies over the next 10 years on top of the 15 billion in tax breaks and corporate welfare that they are already receiving. In my view, If we are going to make our planet healthy and habitable for future generations, we cannot provide billions of dollars in new tax breaks to the very same fossil fuel companies that are currently destroying the planet. So that's Bernie Sanders explaining that as a part of this bill, which has money to address the climate, Democrats caved to Joe Manchin and basically allowed uh, fossil fuel subsidies and payouts and the construction of new pipelines. And it wasn't just that. Here is Brianna Joy Gray, a friend of the show, on the Hills Rising, explaining how Democrats also let Republicans strip out other important provisions.
3: Over the weekend, Senate parliamentarian Elizabeth McDonough advised Democrats to cut the parts of the spending bill that would punish drug makers for inflating their prices. The lever reported that this could have saved $40 billion. She also advised Democrats to cut the legislation, which would cap insulin costs at $35 a month for people on private insurance plans. What did Chuck Schumer do? Did he ignore her like George Bush might have done? Did he fire her? No. He pretended as though this random low-level AIDS opinion was binding authority and he stripped these life-saving provisions from the bill. Now, when a provision is stripped from a bill, it takes 60 votes to get it back in. So by not fighting the parliamentarian Democrats who only have 50 votes in the Senate, create cover for themselves. Every single Democrat can grandstand in front of their voters and vote to add the provisions back in without any danger of those parts of the bill actually making it back into the bill, the bill and, and, and having the bill actually pass and therefore upsetting the lobbyists that fill their campaign coffers. And that's exactly what happened. All 50 Democrats voted to keep those provisions in the bill. Seven Republicans even got on board, but praise be to Edna Sigma and the temple of private health insurance. There just so happened to be three too few votes to help the American people. Think I'm being too cynical? Listen to this reporting from The Lever. Eight of the Senate's top 10 recipients of donations from the pharmaceutical and health products industry are Democrats, and the industry funneled more than 61 million to Democratic candidates in the last two election cycles far more than it gave to GOP politicians during the same period.
1: So that's re-explaining what Democrats did. They basically let the parliamentarian get in the way of provisions, including capping the price of insulin. And because they didn't uh, essentially dismiss the parliamentarian as previous administrations have done, including the Bush administration, that set them up to let the GOP ultimately kill these important provisions. So this right. is a case, not just a Democrats suck, and as Bree goes on to explain, It's also an example of Republicans suck too. Uh, And in fact, that's actually, that's a good leading to our Republicans suck because that's what you're talking about there too. It's
0: bipartisan suckage. So I was afraid that I'd have to do a whole thing about how, well, this is Republicans suck, but really Democrats suck too. But luckily that was your Democrats suck. So now let's look at the opposite side of the same evil face of bipartisan cravenness. And let's see uh, for Republicans suck. We're going to talk about how the Republicans did indeed vote against capping insulin, uh, at $35 a month. So, so during these negotiations over the climb over it and healthcare bill, the inflation reduction act, which is barely that, uh, as Bernard pointed out, uh, Senate Republicans blocked an effort to place a $35 monthly cap on insulin for most Americans. And what's interesting is some of these very Republicans have lamented the high cost of insulin. So let's take a look at this video of Joni Ernst.
4: The skyrocketing costs of prescription drugs has become a matter of life and death for so many. We've heard the heartbreaking stories of individuals who could not afford their insulin, were forced to ration and skip doses, and as a result, they lost their lives. I remember quite vividly a conversation I had with an Iowa mother Explaining how she lost her son, who as a young man was rationing his insulin because he could not afford to do more. It was a heartbreaking discussion, and having that discussion with that mother, I could not help but think then of my own brother and sister who have been reliant on insulin as juvenile diabetics for nearly all of their lives. When we talk about the cost of prescription drugs, folks, lives are literally on the line. And Iowans have been very clear with me where they stand on this issue. They want to see us come together to advance solutions that drive down those drug Prices.
0: Now, that's very moving and very touching. Uh, and it's, it's great that she knows that people's lives are on the line. Uh, it just means that she's that much more of a weird ghoul for voting against capping the price of insulin because she knows that lives are on the line, including apparently her brother and sister. So I don't know what made her vote against this. Maybe she started hating her brother and sister. Maybe there was a family dynamic thing. She got into a fight with them no longer wants them to be able to afford insulin. Unclear, but something changed here.
1: Yeah, her speech sounds like she's about to justify voting for a price cap on insulin. But right. apparently when it came time time to vote, she went the other way.
0: So uh, yeah, Joni, you suck, Republicans suck. It is nice that we can have this bipartisanship, people coming together to help kill people with diabetes from both parties.
1: That's right. Yeah, in their own way. Democrats in their cowardly way and Republicans in their typically sadistic way, just openly expressing their contempt for people who need insulin to survive.
0: Yeah.
1: So great job, everybody. All right. So for Isn't That Weird, check out this tweet from the Ukrainian government. This is the uh, Center for Strategic Communication and Information Security under the Ministry of Culture and information policy of ukraine and this is this is what they tweeted out it's pretty scary
0: pretty, pretty pretty scary
1: urgent russian troops have wired energy units of the zaporizhia nuclear power plant with explosives major general vasilyev commander of the garrison station at the plant announced readiness to blow up the plant leading to a nuclear catastrophe Oh my God, this is a crazy allegation. This is the Ukrainian government accusing Russia of wiring a nuclear power plant with explosives and basically holding the world hostage that if Russia doesn't get what it wants, it's going to blow up the plant and cause a nuclear catastrophe. This is an actual allegation from the Ukrainian government. And this is because right now there's these allegations on both sides that the other is shelling this nuclear power plant Russia has occupied it since March and there are still Ukrainians working there and there's been shelling of this plant and both sides, Russia and Ukraine, accuse the other of doing it. And the UN has been saying this could trigger a disaster. This is suicide. And everyone is pleading just for some resolution to this. But this is Ukraine saying that not only is Russia shelling the plant, its own plant, which is a strange allegation because The the idea that Russia would shell a nuclear plant that it's currently occupying is just seems pretty far fetched, but also they've wired it with explosives and are like holding basically the world hostage. It's a uh, it's pretty crazy. And what is the U.S. doing uh, in response to uh, to this crisis, this threat of a nuclear disaster? It's sending its largest shipment of weapons to Ukraine yet. And just look at this headline from Politico. U.S. authorizes largest yet military package to Ukraine. So amidst the threat of a nuclear catastrophe, the U.S. is responding by just sending more weapons to its ally. I don't know. That's also kind of an isn't that terrible anti-democrats suck, but it's also just really weird. The allegation that like Russia is basically willing to detonate a nuclear power plant. That's just pretty out there.
0: Well, he's a madman, right? Don't they always say that? He's a madman. Aaron. Does
1: fit in with the madman there, yeah, for sure. He's like
0: a, he's a lot like you know who.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Hi- Hitler, as they like to say. Well, that is weird. Uh, I wonder if we're going to hear more on that. Any updates? Well, on well, that? Let's hope
1: so, because uh, if not, we might have a nuclear holocaust.
0: Yeah, although a lot of people seem okay with that. A lot of the people calling who were calling for um a no-fly zone.
1: Oh sure, yeah. There are plenty of people who are uh, nuclear holocaust curious, for sure.
0: Yeah, right sure. on the spectrum. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so for Isn't That Terrible, we have some uh, really important announcement. Aaron, this is a little bit before your time on uh, Useful Idiots, but uh, I really don't like sharks, and I think we live in a very sharkagandistic agandistic world. Um, big shark, big lobby. I don't know how they do it, but they somehow scare the media into downplaying them. But luckily, every now and then, some brave journalistic outlet with a lot of integrity comes out and tells the truth that speaks truth to Finn about sharks. So, here, let's read it at the New York Post. Shark spotted in shallows near kids playing. Get out of the water. And now let's read the article. They looked as if they were going to crawl up on land. Large sharks were spotted swimming next to the shore in Florida Saturday, prompting beachgoers to evacuate. Footage of the shallow water shark NATO is making waves online amid spikes in attacks and sightings along the eastern seaboard. The Jaws dropping clip, get it, filmed Saturday at Neptune Beach in Jacksonville, per Fox News, shows several large sharks of indeterminate species cruising through the shallows mere feet from the beach where kids are playing. Elsewhere in the clip, swimmers can be seen standing in the drink as two men are escorted to shore by a yellow lifeguard float. The clip, which coincidentally coincides with Discovery's annual Shark Week program, comes amid an unverified report that a man had been attacked that same day at a Jacksonville beach with eyewitnesses claiming his leg had been left in shreds, according to Jam Press. Supposed bystanders claimed they saw the man gesturing for help, followed by blood filling the sea. Though these reports have yet to appear in local media. Again, I think we know why shark perhaps veracity of the attack notwithstanding there's been a rash of sharktivity along the east coast of late last week alarming drone footage showed sharks including great whites circling in the water 100 feet away from the beaches of long island the fo- this followed an uptick in sightings which prompted authority authorities to shut beaches across the region thankfully in most of the instances it was unlikely the sharks were l- l- looking at the victims as lunch quote one thing to keep in mind is sharks we're not out there trying to eat surfers and swimmers. They'd much rather eat fish, but in many cases, they mistake us for their actual prey. When they do bite, they usually move on. That's supposed to make us feel better? That they're mistaking us for fish, and after one chomp, they'll move on? That doesn't give me a lot of reassurance or solace. But no surprise. Typical shark line.
1: <laughs> These sharks are living on the wild side.
0: They're living on the wild side, Gotta out yeah. of
1: control. Sharks gone wild.
0: I wish we could just get rid of them as a species, but apparently that would be bad for the food chain.
1: So that would be if you could eliminate one.
0: Oh yeah, big time.
1: Sharks would be it. Yeah. Oh yeah, definitely from yeah. the animal kingdom came- from yep. the uh, species. Yeah. Okay. What about you? I mean, I you know I I live in New York City, so I'm biased to want to uh, eliminate rats. Yeah. I don't see what they offer. Yeah, not a lot. Just scaring disease. people constantly. Scaring on the people
0: and dis- yeah. and they're I think they carry a lot of disease.
1: There we go. Man, yeah. I'm sorry. Any rats who watch you, slowly I apologize, and I yeah. I don't want to. I'm sorry to exclude you and to wish for your elimination, but yeah, it's what it is.
0: Exclude is a little bit of a euphemism for yeah. wishing someone's death. Yeah. I'm sorry to exclude you from life on Earth. Yep. Yeah. So, Aaron, anything else that's on your mind?
1: Well, should we talk about what happened when CBS News decided to report factually on yes. the Ukraine proxy war?
0: Yeah. What happened? I'm sure it, they were fearless in their reporting, right?
1: well they were for a second but then we're because of that second they got attacked and they caved instantly look at this look at this tweet from cbs news cbs news says we removed a tweet promoting our recent doc arming ukraine which quoted the founder of the nonprofit blue yellow jonas oman's assessment in late april that only around 30 percent of aid was reaching the front lines in ukraine and what he was saying there in this clip was that 30 percent of the weapons aid to ukraine was actually reaching the front lines in Ukraine. The rest of it was not being tracked. And that's what other experts, including somebody from Amnesty International, told CBS News. So after they reported that, that basically the U.S. is not keeping track of the flood of weapons that it's sending to Ukraine, billions of dollars worth, CBS News got pilloried online. People were calling it Russian propaganda, all the usual stuff. And within hours, CBS deleted that tweet of the clip and even said that it was going to re-edit its documentary. And the basis for that, they said, was that they've received updated figures since then, and that recently one US official arrived in Ukraine this month to help keep track of where the weapons are going. So somehow magically, a US official, one person arriving in Ukraine this month, uh, after this war has been going on for uh, six months, uh, can now suddenly single-handedly keep track of all these weapons. It's pretty extraordinary. But luckily, uh, somebody saved the clip that was deleted by CBS and let's look at why it was deemed so offensive. In the past two months, we've moved weapons and equipment to Ukraine at record speed. Drones, grenade launchers, machine guns. We're seeing this incredible historic
4: flow of weapons coming into Ukraine. Do we have any sense as to where they're going? We don't know. There is really no information as to where they're going uh, at all. And
1: you know, all this stuff goes, goes through the border, and then kind of like something happens. It kind of like you know, 30%, maybe we just find the destination. 30%? Are you concerned about weapons getting in the wrong hands? I don't care at all whether
3: that happens. What sort of a unit do you
1: command?
2: Uh,
3: can't say. Okay. You know,
1: they're like power lords, oligarchs, uh, uh, political players. One of the biggest targets are convoys like this
4: transporting weapons. Uh, Europeans had come to believe that that project of integration had effectively meant the banishment of armed force. All of a sudden, not far from the borders of the EU, was the most significant war since World War II.
1: So the documentary is called Arming Ukraine, and the new title should be censoring journalism, because that's what CBS effectively did to itself after it got some outcry. And it's amazing how little it takes to intimidate people. I'm sure they got some angry phone calls from some sources at the Pentagon, and there are a lot of trolls online, blue checks, the government, people from the government of Ukraine, I imagine, were upset about this, too. But that's all it takes. And that's how beautifully our propaganda system works. There's no like government agency saying you you have to change this or you'll be put in jail. It's enough just to give people a little bit of flack. And the power of intimidation is enough to get people to reverse course. And in other cases, like in the case of RT, the Russian-backed network, that can be taken off of the air by regulators and off of YouTube and all the major platforms. In the case of private corporations like CBS News, Just getting angry at them and calling them Russian propagandists is enough to do the job. So our propaganda system works so efficiently. You have to admire it.
0: I'm really looking forward to their sequel uh, called Whitewashing Ukraine.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yes. Well, that's what they're doing. And uh, it just speaks to how important this proxy war is to the powers that be and how thus desperate they are to control the narrative. Amazing that CBS, you know, as a journalistic outlet, can cave so quickly. Anyway, it speaks to the importance of independent media. That's what it comes down
0: to. I mean, also let's bear in mind, this is something we saw that we know about. There's going to be so much censorship, pre-censorship of pieces so that if someone wanted to do something like this, first of all, they probably, it's going to take a lot of obstacles. there are going to be a lot of obstacles. So, so first of all, people, will be discouraged from doing pieces like this because they know the atmosphere and they know the hand that, they're not gonna bite the hand that feeds them, right? Then imagine you you write a script and you present it, it could get canceled at that point. This happened to actually be produced. Yeah. So we know about it because they had to take it down afterwards. But just imagine the inherent censorship that's already baked into it that we don't even know about.
1: Absolutely. And that's, that speaks to how well our propaganda system works, that like you create enough flack in one case It will not only solve the problem of this one story that got out of line that said too many factual things, but it will deter people in the future from doing the same thing, which is reporting the facts. So it works so well.
0: Yeah. I can't believe it. It's, it's really unbelievable. Yeah. I'm glad someone saved it. So any, 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 uh, media that's at all critical of the narrative, uh, when it comes to the war in Ukraine, make sure you download it. Cause it's going to get taken off Yeah, Yeah. We also have a stone moment for you. So this is Joe Biden trying to put his jacket on. And Jill steps in to help him. Now I'm a little torn. I find this kind of endearing and cute. But it doesn't inspire that much confidence. What do you think?
1: You know, I've been there before. Yeah. You're putting on a suit jacket, especially one that's a little bit tight.
0: Yeah, and it's windy where he is.
1: It's windy, you know.
0: Oh, then he drops his glasses.
1: I give him a pass for this one.
0: You give him a pass, all right. All right, so it's not a stone moment then. It's a a could be stoned. Could be stoned. Um, I mean,
1: if you were stoned, probably you'd have a harder time putting on a jacket. Right, yeah. So, yeah.
0: All right, and let's see, we have another one. This this is actually really does make it seem like he was smoking pot, you'll see.
2: (coughs) Was hollowed out. We let semiconductor manufacturing go overseas, and as a result, today we barely produce ten percent of the semiconductors. (coughs) Excuse me, despite being the leader in chips design as well as research. American company Micron is announcing today
1: that because of this law it's going to invest. $40 $40 billion over Forty. 10 years to build factories and special chips called memory chips that store information on your
2: smartphone. <laughs> investment. This investment alone is going to create 40,000 jobs. <laughs> Excuse me, I'm sorry. An increased market share in memory chips by 500 percent. Two more American companies want to take another sip of
0: water. Sometimes you burn your throat can't
1: stop coughing oh yeah look the takeaway there is if you're gonna hit the weed and we're not advocating it everyone's gonna make their own choices yeah. but if you're gonna smoke weed you gotta ease off on those toes you know don't take too yeah. big of a hit or else you're gonna like joe biden just be coughing profusely right.
0: profusely yeah yeah have a gummy joe
1: exactly yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. or don't or don't you know we're or not don't. advocating right,
0: right. You know.
1: but if you're going to yeah, if you're yeah. going to we're not saying you should be like joe biden no
0: and we're not saying Joe Biden should ingest anything, but we're saying if he yeah. needs it for whatever yeah. reason, do a gummy better for your lungs. Exactly. All righty. Well, we got a great guest for you.
1: Yes, we do. Indeed. Yeah.
0: We're going to be talking to historian and author Vijay Prashad. He is a writing fellow and chief correspondent at Globetrotter. He is the chief editor of Leftward Books and the director of Tricontinental Institute for Social Research. He is a senior non-resident fellow at Chongyang Institute for Financial Studies, Renmin University of China. He has written more than 20 books, including The Darker Nations and The Poorer Nations. His latest book is Washington Bullets with an introduction by Evo Morales Ayma. But he actually has another book that's come out and he has another book coming out with Noam Chomsky, which we'll talk about with him. So Vijay Prashan. We're so excited to have Vijay Prashad joining us. Welcome.
2: It's a pleasure to be with you. And what a name for a podcast, Useful Idiots. The question, of course, is useful idiots for whom? (laughs) But anyway, I'll leave that aside because there's too much speculation these days.
0: Right. Yeah, Yeah, we got to keep people uh, curious. So there's so much that we want to talk with you about, but I thought we could start off with uh, something that you wrote about recently You wrote this piece uh, for the Times in South Africa. It's called, Can We Please Have an Adult Conversation About China? Hatred of the country and its people has largely been generated by the U.S. And it's time this madness of our time stopped. So what made you write this piece?
2: Well, you know, there's been a controversy going on in South Africa, which I find uh, peculiar, in which I was dragged in You know somehow well somehow is a disingenuous thing i was dragged in because um i know some people who are in the middle of shutting down or restructuring a website uh, where i don't actually have any personal responsibility or i'm not you know on the staff or anything but anyway i was dragged into a controversy and in the middle of all this in both uh, the mail and guardian and in daily maverick two major newspapers in south africa I was essentially called a Chinese agent, an agent of China. Well, what was the evidence given for that? One piece of evidence is that at the institute that I direct, Tricontinental, I have um, at least three people, uh, fellows of the institute, uh, who are domiciled in China. One of them happens to also be one of the principal people at the China Institute, which is at Fudan University in Shanghai. And I also happen to have a uh, unpaid position at Chongyang Institute, which is at Renmen University in Beijing. Okay, all of these things somehow make me an agent of China. Well, what is China that I'm supposed to be an agent of? Um, do they mean the Chinese people? That's 1.4 billion people telling me what to do. Do they mean the Communist Party of China? That's 95 million of them. Do they mean I take direct instructions from Xi Jinping? It's not clear to me. Am I an employee of the Chinese government? Well, certainly not. I'm certainly not an employee of the Chinese government. So what, what was all this about? It struck me, Katie, that rather than have a conversation about China, have, have a conversation about the role of China in the world, they simply wanted to say I'm not a credible person to listen to. Well, okay, you don't want to listen to me, don't listen to me. That, that's a separate issue. Why are you getting so upset? with my presence in the public sphere, you're getting so upset by merely my presence that you then disparage me. So let's have a conversation. What is the issue at hand? Well, are you upset that China has, for whatever reason, been able to create an incredible um, economic uh, engine, which in many areas, including in robotics, in uh, high-speed rail, in telecommunications, in many of these areas, Chinese firms have leapfrogged over Western firms, and rather than commercially compete with these, with these companies, um, Western companies gone running to the White House and said, you know, conduct a trade war, smash China, weaken China, because, you know, they're going to overtake us economically. Well, let's have a discussion about why China is able to outflank the United States economically. That's an adult conversation. You want to talk about Xinjiang? Let's talk about Xinjiang. You want to talk about Taiwan? Let's talk. But instead of having these conversations, these, what I consider to be, well, it's actually unfair to call them adult conversations because adults talk so poorly these days, especially, you know, in the world of Twitter and so on. But the point was, let's talk. You know, why do you need to disparage me? Maybe you don't have an argument to make on some of these issues and you, like the United States, which rather than try to outflank China economically, prefers to use muscle, including military force in the same kind of way other journalists, commentators, you know, people uh, at think tanks and so on. Rather than have a real conversation, you just want to fire, you know, I guess some sort of missile at me and say, get him out of the public domain.
1: This uh, flare up recently over Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan. What does that signify? Was that a turning point in U.S.-China relations? And and why was her visit so significant from the point of view of China?
2: See, Aaron, it's important for people to know that in, until 1978, 79, the United States actually recognized the, the Republic of China, what was known as the Republic of China or Taiwan, as the legitimate claimant to being China. You know, the United States backed Taiwan. Well, people may not know this, but from 1949, when the Kuomintang fled the mainland for Taiwan, from 1949 to 1987, Taiwan was a dictatorship led by the Kuomintang. I mean, the United States, in that sense, backed a dictatorship against the People's Republic of China. It's not a question of you know democracy versus communism or anything. It was an out-and-out out dictatorship. After 1987, when the dictatorship quote-unquote ended, for the next decade or so, the Kuomintang remained in power. But in 78, 79 the United States, for geostrategic reasons under Jimmy Carter, decided to shift allegiance from Taiwan to the People's Republic of China, and indeed, Already in the early 70s, the People's Republic of China uh, took the United Nations seat that was for China. So that had already happened. And in the late 70s, the US recognized the PRC, not Taiwan. But in order to maintain a kind of strategic piss you off sort of demeanor, the US government passed the Taiwan Relations Act. And since 1979, the United States has played this duplicitous game, you know, has on the one side obviously recognized the People's Republic of China, engaged the PRC, you know, benefited by the fact that there was an enormous economic growth in southern China, in the Shenzhen region, put a lot of US investment into China. Apple, Apple as a company, would never have taken off without China. Apple, entirely in its history, is reliant on China. So all of that, but at the same time, this sort of you know, needle that the United States maintained of arms sale to Taiwan. And you may not remember this, but in the 1990s, a political party was formed in Taiwan called the 51st State. They wanted Taiwan to, in fact, be absorbed into the United States. But you see, the United States is not interested in that. The US is in, has been using Taiwan as a little instrument whenever they, it felt the need to, quote unquote, discipline China in much the same way that the United States and Western powers have used Hong Kong. Now look, Hong Kong for over a hundred years was a British colony. Nobody said a word, the US Congress never said a word about democracy, human rights of the people in Hong Kong. There were no rights for those people, okay? But the moment Hong Kong reverted to China, the moment, you know, uh, Chris Patton, the last governor of Hong Kong, British colonial governor of Hong Kong, reverted the island to China, suddenly they started talking about democracy and human rights in Hong Kong. In fact, Chris Patton, shameless Chris Patton, would appear on BBC, also shameless, where they would talk about the lack of democracy. Chris Patton, you were the the last governor general of the British crown over Hong Kong. What did you do for democracy in Hong Kong? In that way, Aaron, Taiwan, Hong Kong, Xinjiang, These are all instruments used by the United States to essentially kind of provoke, rattle, but really discipline China to teach China a lesson. You know, we've got this other thing on you. You know, it would be as if the Chinese decided, and I know this is a silly argument, as if the Chinese decided to play little games with Guam or play a game with Hawaii, you know, where Xi Jinping would... Take a flight to Guam. Wouldn't that be interesting? What would the US government do if Xi Jinping decided I'm going to visit Guam? My God, there'd be an international incident over this uh, and so on. So I actually don't really feel, Aaron, that this is a turning point. I feel that the visit of Nancy Pelosi, not by herself, I mean, there were liberal Congress people, quote unquote liberal, Gregory Meeks of New York City who's put this ridiculous bill before the US legislature on, you know, Russian influence in Africa and so on. These people all went to Taiwan together to Taipei. And what this is, in my opinion, is merely a escalation of the same policy. This is not a decisive break. The reason we know it's not a decisive break is because there were these signals coming from the White House, from President Joe Biden and from the Pentagon, that they were not entirely keen on Pelosi's visit. This is the way in which this disciplining has happened. You know, years ago, you know, Nancy Pelosi herself in another congressional visit went to Beijing, where she went very provocatively to Tiananmen Square and unraveled a sign which said, you know, we stand for democracy and so on. This is part of that sort of, you know, we have this on you attitude of the US government. And it's, it's really, really um, bothersome to people in other countries because it's, it's a super arrogant approach you know, to to foreign relations.
0: And what do you think is going to happen next? I mean, are we, you're saying it's not a departure point, but is it, are we closer to war than we've been before?
2: Well, it depends who we is. Um, right. The first thing I think is that the Chinese have, I mean, look, very fortunately for the world, China did not make this an incident beyond a war of words, because it would have been quite easy for Chinese military planes to have blocked the approach of Nancy Pelosi's aircraft uh, into Taiwanese airspace. They didn't play any games like that. They actually allowed her to land in Taipei. She met people, she got on her plane, she left. They didn't actually make an incident in the skies and so on. This was not a Cuban missile crisis, you know. They, they just let it happen. But then what did they do? Immediate military drill uh, around Taiwan closed down the airport. It's significant that they actually shut down civilian craft after Nancy Pelosi had left just to send a message saying we could have done that, you know, but they didn't. They did not want to make, escalate this into a serious, you know, Cuban Missile Crisis type incident. So they let it happen. That's actually a sign of maturity on their part. Some people, you know, who are aggressive say, well, it was weakness. I don't think so. I think that's a sign of maturity. What they did afterwards is interesting. They cut off, either suspend it or completely cut off uh, relations with the United States in terms of theater command that means that the East Asian US high officials no longer communicating with Chinese high officials they cut off communications on climate change and so on on a range of important issues counter you know narcotics and so on they just close down the channels of communication now where will this escalate you see my immediate fear uh, is that in China, the way I understand it, is they are looking at what happened in Ukraine and they are worrying very much about a repeat. Well, how do they an, analyze the Ukraine situation? See, Most people in Eurasia don't actually see the Ukraine story as a story of NATO's eastward expansion. It's not that, because if it had been that, then this would have been an issue earlier when you know when the Baltic states joined NATO, which actually border Russia. No, the issue isn't so much that. The issue is another thing. The other thing is the United States under Donald Trump unilaterally withdrawing from the Intermediate Nuclear Force Treaty. Once Trump left the INF Treaty in 2019, going into effect in 2020, it was very clear that the Russians were absolutely not going to permit the United States unilaterally, not through NATO, unilaterally, placing mid-range nuclear missiles in Ukraine. And I think what the Chinese fear is the United States will go through with placing mid-range nuclear missiles in Taiwan. If not in Taiwan, then in some of the small um, islands held in captivity by the US, such as Guam. If mid-range nuclear missiles enter the South China Sea area, I'm gonna tell you this, China will invade Taiwan. It's not an issue. They're going to cross the the sea and and just take Taiwan because they are simply not going to permit mid-range nuclear missiles to be in range of major Chinese cities. They're just not going to permit it. Uh, You can say, hey, listen, United States has ICBMs that could strike China. That's okay. You know, that's fine. I, I I know that already there are great vulnerabilities for countries like China, even though they have a nuclear capacity but what they're not going to permit is mid-range nuclear missiles because they know that US nuclear policy that is US documents which are available online show clearly that whereas the US understands that firing intercontinental nuclear missiles that are going to obliterate a whole city is out of the question you know even though the US is not uh, has not actually said that they will not permit a first strike still most of the documents show that look they're not going to launch a a missile and like take out beijing but the us has actually said that they seek nuclear primacy in other words they are pretty committed to the possibility of using a mid-range nuclear missile in a battlefield situation that is terrifying for countries like china russia whatever and this is actually what i believe provoked the conflict in ukraine and i think The Chinese at least understand it in those terms and they will not permit anything like that to happen in Taiwan. So, you know, I don't know what Mr. Biden is prepared to do, but if he's prepared to do something like that, well, the jaws of hell have opened wider than we would want. It's amazing how little attention that Trump move of pulling out of the
1: INF Treaty, killing the INF Treaty, got when you think about uh, all all the attention that's paid to Trump very little is attention is paid to the worst things that he did including that which accelerated the race to a nuclear holocaust essentially and raised tensions elsewhere too and recently also nato at a a nato summit nato also went out of its way to name china i believe for the first time as essentially an enemy which is all the more strange given that nato is supposed to be about the north atlantic where china is not even located
2: yeah so this is an interesting development and as you know the two of you know Aaron and Katie, uh, NATO has, at least for the last 20 years, been conducting what it calls out-of-area operations. Um, well, you know, I know it's debatable. The first out-of-area operation was almost Yugoslavia, but I know that's debatable. Um, Yugoslavia really wasn't part of NATO's orbit, but, but let's let that be. The principal and uncontroversial description of an out-of-area operation was NATO's entry into Afghanistan. And then the war of aggression in Libya Um, that was, you know, patently an out of area operation, Well, since Afghanistan and since Libya, uh, particularly right after the the attack on Libya discussions opened up in NATO headquarters and by NATO intellectuals, you know, people who have circled in around NATO people at the Atlantic Council. I mean it's it's good for people to know that the Atlantic Council is essentially the think tank of NATO. Um, That's what it was set up to do. If you read Atlantic Council materials and so on, it's pretty clear that there was talk of using NATO globally. And the phrase that started to get bandied about was global NATO. Okay, this is an interesting thing. And and then we got these other cute kind of things like the Quad, India, Japan, Australia, and the United States, that's the Asian NATO. Well, I don't know, Australia, technically not a part of, of Asia, nor is the United States, but still. And then this new, quite ridiculous grouping called U2I2 uh, United Arab Emirates, United States, Israel, and India, you know, Middle Eastern NATO. I really don't think so. Um, but this word, this idea of NATO as a global phenomena, whether global NATO or an Asian NATO, this has now become more normal. Well, the Madrid summit uh, held this summer in, in Spain of NATO, wasn't actually the first time that their declaration um, pointed a finger at China. It was two years ago when they first started talking about Chinese threats and and so on, and Russian threats as well. This time, the text was far more aggressive than it had been previously. And also, um, NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg quite openly talked about, you know, NATO's kind of role in the world, which is puzzling because that's an illegal um, role in the world. I mean, you know, the United Nations Charter permits some sort of regional organizations, but the United Nations Charter does not permit an international competitor to the UN when it comes to peace and security issues. So here you've got NATO essentially scoffing at the UN Charter. And, and I want to say this, I'm not talking naively, but I do think that if 193 countries sign up to a charter, which has a certain You know, where there's an agreement that there's a monopoly over peace and security unless you build regional, uh, you know, groupings like the African Union or the European Union or NATO. NATO itself, if it remains as a way to maintain security in Europe, that's not a violation of the UN Charter. But it is certainly now coming towards violating the UN Charter if NATO goes out there and sets up shop in Diego Garcia and starts unilaterally bombing countries in Asia and so on. It's a very dangerous thing because what we're getting, and it's parallel to what the United States has been saying for a long time. You know, The United States is, has started to use a phrase You know, now for a decade or so of the rules-based international order. What they mean by that phrase, rules-based international order, is the U.S. rules-based international order. They don't mean the United Nations charter-based international order. So now you've had for a decade or more the United States talking about this you know rules-based international order which will now be essentially um you know maintained by nato not by the un that's dangerous and you know i would like to see countries around the world be a little more circumspect about allowing this concept of global nato to become normal i want to ask you about one aspect of this uh, so-called
1: rules-based international order It comes in Africa, where the US recently uh, laid down some orders. And this is a headline in The New York Times. So this is a headline, a US diplomat warns African countries against buying anything from Russia except grain and fertilizer. And that was the US ambassador to the UN, Linda Thomas-Greenfield, who went to Africa and basically said that if you do trade with Russia except for uh, grain and fertilizer, you will face US sanctions. So that was the U.S. basically threatening Africa over who it can trade with. And, you know, it made me think of of the irony of this allegation that we often get from U.S. officials against China, that because China is making all these deals in Africa, we're told that China is trying to impose its way of life, its system on Africa. I wonder if you can comment both on the threat from the U.S. made towards Africa when it comes to trading with Russia and what China really is actually up to uh, by contrast in Africa.
2: Well, you know, it's not uh, merely the US ambassador to the UN who made these comments. Anthony Blinken, in his tour of Africa, uh, which followed the tour of um, the Russian foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, um, Mr. Blinken, was actually kind of kinder in a way it's almost the good cop to the bad cop he said you can trade with anybody but you know be careful and you know the united states is there for your benefit other countries are not there for your benefit and so on and the and the white house released a fact sheet on us strategy for sub-saharan africa all in one big bundle a um, lot of stuff to read through i must say quite interesting most of it not all of it what does one even make of this honestly um, let's let's take the case of, of, um, of the military. There are 29 known US military bases on the African continent. I, I visited a number of them in the Sahel region, particularly in Niger, in Agadez, where there's the world's largest drone base. There's 29 US military bases, okay? What are they there for? We'll come back to that in a minute. How many Chinese military bases are there in Africa? None. Um, what there are in, in Djibouti is a port structure which the chinese have built in order to participate in the u.n mission against piracy now again whether the chinese should be involved in that what whether the interpretation of piracy is accurate that's a separate question you know we know um you may remember the rapper kenan he did this song where he said look most of these somali pirates are basically fisher people who have lost their livelihood when trawlers from all over the world came in and, and deep fished right up to the coastline, breaking Somali's right to its uh, coastal waters and so on. Anyway, point is, the Chinese have a small base out there to maintain a UN operation. It's not on the continent. It's not a military. United States 29, and I'm not including the US airport where they've taken over uh, essentially a, a, a terminal. I'm not including the base in Zambia. I'm not even talking about the NATO liaison office and the AFRICOM liaison office, both of which are in the African Union building in Addis Ababa. I've seen them. Uh, you can't get into them, but they are interesting, you know, facilities. I don't even know what you'd call them. Is it just an office? Is it a arm twisting shop? I don't know. So United States has this massive military presence. Why? Why is the US there in the Sahel? Well, there's several reasons for the admission. The least of which is its war on terror, let me tell you. Because, you know, I know this war on terror business. In the Sahel region, US is doing nothing about the war on terror. They are helping the French prevent migration northward to Europe. That's one thing. The Europeans have moved their border into the Sahel region. That's one. Secondly, it's resource protection. You know, in Niger, Niger is the home of yellow cake uranium. And if you remember back to the times of, of the Iraq War, when there was a false accusation that Nigerian yellowcake uranium was going to Iraq, well, it is the home of yellowcake uranium. That part of the story is true. Except the largest yellowcake uranium mine in Arlit is controlled by French multinational corporations. That town is totally garrisoned by effectively what looks like the French Foreign Legion. You know, um, it's incredible. So you have this enormous Western military presence on Africa. You have the control over resources. You have the International Monetary Fund with its fingers in everybody's budget. You have all this. You have hundreds of millions of US dollars spent through private foundations, open society, working with the National Endowment of Democracy to influence the media on the African continent. You have all this, and yet you have Blinken. You have, you know, every time I hear Blinken, I hear think of that Blinken something and nod. But anyway, you have Blinken. And you have all these people talking about, and Gregory Meeks, you know, Congressman Meeks, talking about how dangerous Russian and Chinese involvement in his Africa. I mean, when they talk about Chinese colonialism in Africa, that's stunning, because these are the old colonial powers who have never, ever, um, you know, recognized their own role in the impoverishment of the African continent. I mean, when the Congress in Berlin was held when they, the so-called scramble for Africa, when they carved up Africa, 1884, it was European countries and the United States at the table. There was no China, no Russia at the table. Um, you know, what the Germans did in Africa is so scandalous. And now German military is returning to the African continent. There are German military personnel in Mali. You know, imagine. The stories the history just a couple of generations ago what germany did in southwest africa the genocide against the herero people which was the prelude to the genocide in germany and poland and so on against jews you know homosexuals communists and so on the prelude of that the germans in in a sense previewed that against the herero people in southwest africa well all of that is off the table you know and you've got this manufactured liberalism Uh, this manufactured good humor and good grace we are here to take care of you listen african countries 55 of them don't need to be taken care of and let me explain to you why i say that Um, not because you know one needs to be patronizing in any way but look you know mr vladimir Zelensky, the head of government of ukraine was begging through the united nations uh, united states office at the un begging the african union to have a meeting by zoom with all the leaders of the au begging 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 then the au leaders went off to sochi and they met mr putin when they returned to africa eventually they said okay we'll organize a zoom meeting there are 55 heads of government in africa that's if you include the monarch in Mon- in morocco but well that's a debatable question still these are 55 only two heads of government came to that meeting with Mr. Zelensky, only two. Um, they, they counted four, but that's not true because they counted, for instance, the disputed um, you know, prime minister from Libya. That's a huge dispute, which is who represents the Libyan government. Only two bonafide heads of government came and that is extraordinary. That shows that the continent of Africa, they're listening to what the US is saying. They're not buying it anymore. They're not buying it anymore.
0: And uh, shifting gears a little bit, you are one of the uh, luminaries to sign this letter uh, calling on Biden to lift Cuba sanctions, especially in light of the fire, which started on August 5th, when a major oil storage facility in Matanzas, Cuba uh, was hit by lightning. So could you talk about how sanctions exacerbate tragedies like these and what you're hoping the Biden administration will do? And to hear the rest of the interview, please go to usefulidiots.substack.com.
2: And your latest
1: book is, is co-authored with Noam Chomsky, right?
2: Yes, it's called The Withdrawal. And it's, uh, well, you know, it's, I don't know, it's a funny business because, you know, Noam is like, he's like a legendary figure. You know, if, if I earlier said that the Cubans were like the Jedis, and boy, I'm sitting on um, on Star Wars a lot. Uh, Noam is like, I don't know, Obi-Wan Kenobi. I mean, he's like the, the senior Jedi of Jedis. This book, in a way, is a journey from Vietnam to um, to Afghanistan. And it's a look at all these US failures um, to try to use force to drive an agenda. And what was beautiful in the book was I was able to get Noam here and there to talk a little personally. And there's a beautiful section where I ask him about how he was able to maintain this, where he got the confidence form. And his answer is incredible. I mean, it's an incredible answer. It's what I did not expect. So I hope people go just to see that one answer. Awesome. That is a huge feat because no one really is, is, is well known fast. for not wanting to answer
1: personal questions. He always deflects, is it, I'm not interesting, you know, it doesn't matter. But that's a that's an. I can't wait to read that. <laughs> So congratulations.
0: Yeah, seriously. That is uh, an impressive feat. Well, that was great. Love VJ, Always love talking to him.
1: Very informative. And for people who wanna pick up his latest book with Noam Chomsky, it's called The Withdrawal, Iraq, Libya, Afghanistan, and the Fragility of US Power. And I definitely will be picking it up. Sounds great.
0: Yeah, awesome. See you guys next week. Make sure that you become um, Substack subscribers so you can hear our full interview with VJ.
1: All right. Bye, everybody.
0: Right. Bye. Hello. Thank you so much for listening to and watching Useful Idiots. For full episodes and extended interviews, please subscribe at usefulidiots.substack.com. You can subscribe on YouTube at youtube.com slash usefulidiots for clips, live streams, and full episodes. Also, subscribe to us wherever you find your podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Pod and use the hashtag UsefulIdiotsPod. Join us Mondays at 10 a.m. for the Useful Idiots Monday morning show where we discuss the Sunday morning news shows so you don't have to watch them.